It's only the beginning. We've seen the court dilute minority voting rights. We've seen the court strip millions of women of the ability to control their own bodies. The court is in danger of striking down gun control in New York City. We could have it in America where people are freely carrying guns in New York City amid an epidemic of gun violence. We're living in a time when more people are carrying guns than ever before, firing guns than ever before, and manufacturing guns at home than ever before. Anyone, anywhere, any kid anywhere can go online and purchase gun components and then assemble it into a fully functioning firearm within a matter of 15 to 30 minutes. Richie Torres, member of the House of Representatives for New York's 15th Congressional District on The Janice Adams Show. First, the news. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome. Congressman Richie Torres returns to the show today. With all that's going on in his New York City hometown, the state, the country, indeed the world, his perspective comes right on time. We first met in 2017, co-panelists for an event at Barnard College. He was serving then as the youngest person ever elected to the New York City Council. Born to an Afro-Latino family and raised in the Bronx, he grew up in public housing. His mother worked two jobs to cobble together a subsistence income. As Richie, his sister, and twin brother grew up with mold, lead, leaks, and no reliable heat or hot water in the winter, he watched the city's government spend over $100 million to build a golf course directly across the street for Donald Trump's organization. That and other facts of the New York life he calls the tale of two cities, one disproportionately privileged, the other disproportionately disadvantaged, that was his call to action. In 2013, at 25, he ran for office. He was elected the youngest city councilman in the city's 400-year history and the first LGBTQ person to hold office in the Bronx. It has indeed been quite a while. Welcome to the show, Congressman Richie Torres. It's an honor to be here. Because it's been a while since you were on the show, I want to go to a certain point. Where were you on January 6th of 2021? I was in my office, which happens to be the same office that President Kennedy had during his time in the house, Canon 317. And I was waiting to go to the house for the vote when all of a sudden the Capitol Police barged inside my office, directing my staff and me to immediately evacuate. There was pandemonium and panic in the Capitol and the office buildings connected to the Capitol. And I was left wandering through the labyrinth of tunnels for about an hour. Uh, not knowing how close I were, was to the insurrectionists. And then finally, the Capitol Police found me and brought me to a super spreader event. Um, it was a day like no other. I, I felt the same sense of shock and confusion that I had on 9-11. I just could not believe what was happening. And I'll be honest, when we last spoke, if you had said to me, we first met in 2018 during a panel at Columbia University. And if you had said to me back then that I would become a member of Congress during an infectious disease outbreak and witness an insurrection against the US Capitol during the Electoral College vote count, and then vote to impeach an outgoing president who had been impeached once before, and all of that would happen within the first two weeks, I would have said, that sounds like a movie. Oh, oh, you know, I knew it happened. But when you say in the first two weeks, it, it's really quite something. So well, the insurrection was my was my first week. Like I, I, I jokingly said to a colleague, I have a colleague who won a special election and became 
uh, a member of Congress, and during her first week, she voted on the infrastructure bill. So I say to my colleague, your first week included infrastructure. My first week included insurrection. insurrection. So you might have a more promising start to your political career than I do. Oh my goodness. No, thank goodness your your political career is is quite stellar and telling because it does not begin that week. It begins before. But that I want to go back to that moment for for a second because as you said, you and I first met in 2018. And so we had we at least knew each other. And therefore, I'm sitting, I'm a historian. By training. And I had never really paid any attention to the <laughs> to the certification of the vote. And uh, I had heard about it. But this time I was home because of the pandemic. I'm at my desk and I say, well, let me just turn on and keep it on in the background and, and watch. So I was watching in real time everything that was going on from the moment that outside the Capitol, the cameras first start picking up that something is happening here. Because you and I knew each other, it changed the entire event. It wasn't an attack on the Capitol. It was an attack on someone I knew. Uh, and I know I, I texted you that night and just said, how are you? But I, I also ask, because this is your start. It's not your start, but it is your start, at least as a congressman. Your family your close friends, how did they come through this, knowing what you had gone through? Look, everyone feared for my safety because you're watching the invasion of the U.S. Capitol in real time. And there was reason to think that these insurrectionists were out to do harm to members of Congress, particularly those of us of color. Yes. And I was bombarded with hundreds of texts and phone calls uh, inquiring about my safety, even from people who who I consider political adversaries, but who were genuinely concerned about my well-being. No, it's just it was a it was a terrifying time, but um, I have colleagues who continue to struggle with post-traumatic stress. I'm sure they do. And I was going to ask you, therefore, you're walking in the halls of Congress every day, and how does that place operate with people who know full well what took place, are lying about it, lying about it to the cameras, even though they surely know better, so they can't lie about it to themselves, but they are lying to the cameras and the Capitol Police who defended them, they have so demeaned. How does that place operate? I mean, to the outside, it doesn't operate, but how does it operate? The, the atmosphere of Congress has never been more polarized and poisonous. And it is emotionally challenging to be part of the same institution as members who might have incited the insurrection. Half of the Republican conference voted to decertify the election to overturn the peaceful transfer of power. And it's hard for me to be in, in the same room as those people. Um, you know, I'm open to diversity of opinion. You know, there are issues in which reasonable people of goodwill can have differences of opinion. We can disagree about tax rates. We can disagree about particular regulations. But what should never be up for debate is the peaceful transfer of power, which is the foundation on which a democratic society is built. Yeah. And what the Republicans did was cross the line that should never be crossed. So here we are a year and months later and thinking of all the headlines, all the things that are going on, I just want to ask you, with the United States having the highest rates of incarceration of any country on the globe and also the greatest number of people incarcerated, not just the rate, but the greatest number as well. What are we as black, brown, and indigenous people supposed to take from the idea that the ringleader of that kind of an event is walking around free, his sergeants at arms, his colleagues, his, his Confederates in that 
are walking around free and we have more black and brown and indigenous people in prison than any place, you know, than disproportionately in the country that has more people in the world. What are we supposed to take from that? And what does this mean to the agenda going forward? In America, this long been a double standard that privileges white people. Um, the insurrection is a manifestation of systemic racism. The very presidency of Donald Trump is a manifestation of systemic racism. If, if I had done what some of my white male Republican colleagues did, if I had inspired an insurrection, I would no longer be in public office. We would never tolerate that kind of behavior from people of color. And yet we accept it, we normalize it when it comes from a party of largely white males. Barack Obama conducted himself in the same manner that Donald Trump has done. He would be persona non grata. He wouldn't he would be, be alive. Out of he wouldn't be alive, let's be honest. There were more death threats against that man than any other president. And that was just the threat level. There's a double standard. And, and it, you know, Donald Trump is the, as, as odious a human being as you can imagine in the American presidency. I mean, he is a man who actively demonizes the press, demonizes the courts, muses about sexually assaulting women, but he gets away with it because there is a double standard. And the judges that he appointed are unanimous in the, of the opinion that women should not have rights to their own person. Every conservative justice, except one, has been appointed by a president who lost the popular vote. And these so-called conservative judges refuse to conserve a 50-year tradition of protecting a woman's right to control her own body. Right? These are not conservatives, these are reactionaries. We're radically dismantling a core constitutional protection that has endured for half a century. Yes, and supporting initiatives of people who derive their power from terrorism, because that's what January 6th was. They have sustained their power based on supporting those who support the notion of terrorism. So here, here we are. I, I asked what hap what's happening there and how how are things getting done? And we can we both shake our heads on camera in terms of what's getting done. But the next question we've just talked about the pushback on women's rights, which I think is finally getting people's attention in terms of the pushback on black voting rights that did not happen. So here we have an agenda that the Democratic Party was elected overwhelmingly to put forth and to achieve that is right now not getting to the place that it needs to get. How is the Democratic agenda going to be able to go forward if the rights of Black and Brown and Indigenous people to vote are under siege? I, I agree with you. Um, everything starts with voting rights. Yeah, in, in order for us to address the bread and butter economic issues that weigh heavily on everyday Americans, we have to protect our democracy. We have to protect the voting rights of all Americans, but especially black and brown Americans who are targeted for disenfranchisement. The central culprit here has been the Supreme Court, which has all but eviscerated the Voting Rights Act, both Section 2 and Section 5. You know, one of the provisions of the Voting Rights Act was preclearance. Preclearance prevented nearly 1,200 voting restrictions from taking effect from 1965 to 2006. There is no greater legislative success story than the Voting Rights Act, which has been gutted at the hands of a right-wing reactionary Supreme Court. We are exposed. We are more vulnerable. We take even Roe versus Wade. We're in 2022. Women born in 2022 will have less gender equality and less privacy than they would have in 1973. The Supreme Court has Turn the clock back by half a century. Given the history of the United States with the cycles of the history of the United States, it could be another 60 years before we have another civil rights movement and women's movement of sufficient power to right that all over again. This is not the first time of the so-called rollback. This is, uh, this is depravity at the core of the country's center that some people are allowed to destroy other people's lives for their own gain. And it's, it's only the beginning. You know, we've seen the court dilute minority voting rights. We've seen the court strip millions of women of the ability to control their own bodies. The court is in danger of striking down gun control in New York State. We could have an America where people are freely carrying guns 
in New York City amid an epidemic of gun violence. I want to ask you about that because there are some proposals for gun control. I mean, you have an, a, a proposal for against ghost guns. Could you explain to us what that is? Yes, yeah, so we're living in a time where, when more people are carrying guns than ever before, firing guns than ever before, and manufacturing guns at home than ever before. So a ghost gun is a gun that can be printed by a 3D printer or manufactured at home. Anyone, anywhere, any kid, anywhere can go online and purchase gun components and then assemble it into a fully functioning firearm within a matter of 15 to 30 minutes. Right? The ability to assemble a gun at home has never been greater. So ghost guns are essentially self-manufactured guns that have no uh, tracking number, no serial number. And if there's no serial number, there's no means of tracing the gun by federal law enforcement. It easily can evade detection by federal law enforcement. And so we've seen a gargantuan growth in ghost guns into the streets of New York City and onto the hands of children. In the first four months of 2022, there's been a 350% rise in the number of ghost guns. From 2016 to 2021, the number of ghost guns has gone from 2,000 to 20,000. Uh, and it has a disproportionate impact on children and teenagers. For the first time ever, gun violence has become the leading cause of death among children and teenagers. And ghost guns is part of the problem. We have to expand the, the meaning of firearms to include ghost guns so that those guns have serial numbers, which allow them to be tracked by federal law enforcement. And so that those guns have to be sold by a licensed gun dealer who then conducts a background check. The serial number and the background check, those are the keys to ensuring that dangerous people never get their hands on a gun. Where does the NRA come down on ghost guns? The NRA is against any attempt at regulating guns. The NRA has more blood on its hands than any institution in America. So in a country where we have serious, we talked about incarceration, serious disparities as to who gets incarcerated for what reason, because we know that there are, that basically our lack of a justice system is very race-based. It's been race-based since 1626. So that's what it that's what it is the question then becomes when you do have this racial disparity and one segment of the country is pushing to have guns 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 and more guns and an already marginalized segment of the country is being victimized both by gun violence and by the violence of those who do not want gun control, and also by a system that charges, we know that we have had white men freed on stand your ground, Trayvon Martin being yeah. one of the most prominent victims, and black women imprisoned for having a legal gun, firing it in the air and shooting nobody, I mean, killing nobody or harming nobody, just putting up a warning shot. And that woman ended up in jail. So how are not only the issue of the disparity in, as you say, the, the tracking devices being the, you know, the, 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 the dealerships and also the, the serial numbers, how do we then keep this disparity in who has a gun, who gets to use a gun, who stopped for having a gun from getting even more out of hand than it already is? Keep in mind, I'm not advocating I the eradication. I'm simply advocating gun safety standards, right? Yeah. Ever since, you know, for me, a gun is dangerous, just like an automobile is dangerous. And ever since we put in place automobile safety standards, we've seen a dramatic decline in the number of motor vehicle accidents, a 90% reduction. And, and so we need safety standards for guns for the same reason that we need safety standards for automobiles. In a rational world, every gun would be serialized and safely stored. Every gun owner would be trained and licensed, and every gun sale would be subject to a background check. But there's nothing rational about a world, about a political system that enables one U.S. senator from a state smaller than the Bronx to filibuster gun safety at the expense of 330 million Americans. And for me, there's no greater indictment of our political system than the following fact, right? That 
not even the murder of elementary school children in Sandy Hook was a strong enough provocation to break the iron grip of the filibuster. That, that's how broken our system has become. Congressman Richie Torres, member of the House of Representatives for New York's 15th Congressional District. More with our guest here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Congressman Richie Torres, member of the House of Representatives from the Bronx, District 15. Born of his own life experience, the congressman is intimately aware of the role affordable quality housing plays in stabilizing the lives of working families, the mothers and fathers who keep the city running. I asked him about the impact of an horrific apartment building fire that rocked his district and the city. What are his constituents, survivors of an avoidable tragedy born of numerous code violations? What policies are they demanding he address as their congressman? Well, the South Bronx is ground zero for not only the housing affordability, but also the housing quality crisis. When it comes to fire safety, New York City is a tale of two cities and America is a tale of two countries. If you live in a luxury development in Manhattan, fire safety can be taken for granted. But if you live in an affordable housing development in the South Bronx, there's no guarantee that your building will have functioning sprinkler systems. In fact, it's unlikely to have one. There's no guarantee that your building will have properly functioning self-closing doors. And so we live in a society where poor people of color in places like the South Bronx live at infinitely greater risk of losing everything, their homes, their lives, their loved ones, from a devastating fire. Four of the deadliest fires in New York City history in the past 30 years have all been in the Bronx, from Happy Land to Woody Crest to Prospect to Twin Parks Northeast, Twin Parks Northwest. And in the case of Happy Land and Twin Parks Northwest, the majority of the fatalities were immigrants, Ghanaian immigrants, Garifuna immigrants, These are immigrants who came to America in search for the American dream only to experience a nightmare. And so the fire at Twin Parks Northwest did not happen in a vacuum. It must be seen in the context of systemic racism, of systematic disinvestment from the lowest communities of color. When you disinvest from housing, you are putting the lives of tenants at risk. I'm hearing two things in what you're saying. One, when you talk about those Ghanaian immigrants um, whose lives have been vanquished because of this this horrific fire and and that means not only them uh, but the families that so many immigrants come sending money home to to I know my my own family came from the Caribbean and one person sends for the next and the next person sends for the next and so it's an entire family that is is um devastated when something like that happens. But I, to put it in context, uh, it's also making me think of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire of the early 20th century that was immigrant young women who were treated as less than. And so they were even being locked in to keep them working um, when the fire broke out. And it was because of the locks on the doors that they were not able to escape when the fire came. It seems as though this self-closing door issue, the idea of how we contain fires rather than containing people, is still an issue, and it's a century later. That's one thing. The second thing that I'm hearing when, when you speak about it is that it is from you, it is from speaking with you that I first came to understand, even though you say that these uh fires were largely immigrants uh, who were affected. And unfortunately, some people are of the mindset, well, they'll dismiss that because it's immigrants. I, I, I'm also hearing that public affordable housing, having been on your agenda for so long, you have made the point of who works in, in the, who lives in, in 
affordable housing. It's not just the poor people who are on welfare. It is the people who maintain the city of New York. The people who keep it running are the ones that we're treating so badly. For me, one of the greatest lessons learned from COVID-19 is the indispensable importance of the essential workforce. I, I was here in the South Bronx, which was hit the earliest and the hardest by COVID. The Bronx had a death count of more than 7,000, which is larger than the combined death toll of Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And I saw essential workers, mostly women of color, put their lives at risk during the peak of the pandemic so that the rest of New York City could safely shelter in place. And it seems to me that we have an obligation to ensure that America remains affordable to the essential workforce. The essential worker has a right to afford to live in a city that cannot survive and succeed without her. Recently, Oprah Winfrey has was moved by a story of an African-American man with who became really ill, not only working, but overworking to care for his family. And as he descended into illness, which later was realized to be COVID-19, COVID he went to three hospitals in Detroit, all of which turned him away. And with nothing left to do, he came home, sat in his chair, and died. This health disparity is, as you say, but it is long-standing in the United States. So your proposal, I, I know that you were able to do something for school health programs through Montefiore, mm -hmm. and tell us about that, why we need it. <laughs> for me, it's personal on a few levels. First, when I was young, I grew up near the Cross Bronx Expressway, and I found myself struggling with asthma. I was in and out of the hospital because of asthma attack. Um, and when you have to be hospitalized for asthma, not only are you missing days as a student, but your parents are missing days for work. Like there's greater absenteeism among the students and the parents. There's a loss of income. There's a loss of learning. It's deeply destabilizing. Uh, so that's one piece. And the second piece is when I was in high school, I was struggling with depression without fully understanding it. And when you're struggling with depression without understanding, you often get caught in a cycle of self-doubt and self-blame. You, you mistake it for failure of character or failure of willpower, which only deepens your depression. And I asked myself, and then I eventually went to college and I dropped out, began abusing substances. My life took a downward spiral. But I often ask myself, what if I had had a psychotherapist in high school? What if I had diagnosed my depression early and had gotten the treatment I needed? Then the crises that follow would have been prevented. And so I feel deeply that, you know, our, our school is often a second home and a school is a natural hub of social services and medical services. Like imagine, we imagine our schools as a place where you can go to the dentist, go to the psychotherapist, go to a primary physician, seek reproductive care. Uh, and so in the latest budget, I secured about $3.5 million to support school-based health centers that serve about one-fourth of the Bronx student population. Near and dear to my heart, because if I had access to a school-based health center, uh, I would have had a much smoother path in my life. Apparently, there's some research, Montefiore has research showing that a school-based school center can actually reduce absenteeism by 50%. Wow. Which is a game changer. So, you know, when we think about enabling our students to excel academically, we have to think beyond academics. We have to break down the social structural barriers academic achievement. You, you've spoken openly, uh, and I, I'm so grateful to you for doing so, but you've spoken openly about your own mental health uh, challenges and coming through it. And I want to ask you, therefore, and about the assault that's taking place on young people all over the country. Once again, I don't even call it right wing. I call it wrong wing agenda. I know that some, um, <laughs> you know, because not only were they not moved by the children of Sandy Hook, but here we have children who are, yes, many of them are LGBTQ children, but we have children, period, regardless of what their sexuality is, who are really being traumatized 
in the current environment. And if you traumatize a trans kid, then all the kids who love that trans kid and who are friends of that trans kid are also going to be traumatized. If you, you know, it, because they're kids to each other. They're not the labels that adults put on them. So how are you dealing with what we need to do in terms of this assault on young people? So it's deeply personal to me as a member of the LGBTQ community. I feel that LGBTQ equality has never been more under siege than it is now since 2004. I think we've seen the emergence of a new right in American politics. A new wrong? A new wrong? Um, a new wrong. The new wrong. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the new wrong is waging a new culture war. You know, Christopher and the battle lines of the culture war are race and gender. And Christopher Rufo, who's the architect of critical race theory, recently said in the New York Times that a culture war based on gender might even be better politics than a culture war based on race. So we're and dealing he, with psych yeah. psychopaths here. We're, we're dealing with- Deeply cynical people. Yes, who, yes. Who want to do harm, who want to elicit a reaction, a, a racist reaction, homophobic reaction from a segment of the country. And they are succeeding. You know, Ron DeSantis passed a law punishing Disney for daring to defend its LGBTQ employees, for daring to speak out against the don't say gay law. And the don't, if in Florida, if you're a teacher, you are prohibited from acknowledging the reality that some of your students have LGBTQ families. You are required by law to give the impression to your students that there is something wrong with them and their families. That does not protect children, that traumatizes them. That dehumanizes them. It's also not parental rights for a person who one side of his mouth will tell you about the role of the parents being the ones who were in charge. So the parents who are in charge, if they're not on his political side, don't count. Republicans are declaring war on LGBTQ people, on trans people, under the guise, under the pretense of protecting religious liberty or protecting children or protecting parental rights. Uh, and all of it is nonsense. It's, it's, it's a cynical ploy to win elections, but at the cost of dehumanizing trans people and LGBTQ people. It's evil. It's profoundly evil. So it's not what those of us who disagree with them are saying about a population that would support that. It's what their own leadership is saying about them, because their leadership is saying, we know you are racist, so we will give you a dose of racism that will keep you on our side. We know you are sexist. We will give you that dose of race of sexism to keep you on our side. All of that aside, this is the only life any of us has. And you have been working consistently since you were the youngest member of the city council <laughs> for human rights and for um, your constituency. So. What's on the top of your agenda right now? What are, what are the three top things that you are really determined that you're going to see happen in Congress? Well, I'm intent on seeing the passage of the Build Back Better Act. Uh, we have to invest not only in the physical, but also the social and human infrastructure of our country. And one of the, the centerpiece of the American Rescue Plan, which we passed in March of 2021, was the child tax credit, the expanded child tax credit. Uh, which cut child poverty by 50%, but was left to expire in December of 2021. And since then, we've seen an explosion of child poverty. So my highest legislative priority is the restoration of the child tax credit, which is needed now more than ever in a time of inflation. How does it work? Why does, why does it have such an overwhelming effect on a family, one way or the other? So for me, the expanded child tax credit could have been to families with children, what Social Security has long been to senior citizens. Right? It's, it's a monthly basic income, right? and it should have been a permanent part of the American social safety net. Unlike most tax credits, which are given annually, the expanded child tax credit comes in the form of a monthly payment because the expenses of families tend to be monthly and goes to the family. And the benefit of restoring this, central, this child tax credit is that it would benefit the families who are hit hardest by inflation. And research has shown that the most common uses of those dollars are not drugs and alcohol, as the stereotypes would suggest. The most common uses of those dollars are food, utilities, housing, 
which are the very areas that are hit hardest by inflation. So when congressional people say, as they, as I did hear a congressman say from out West, that he would never give vote for the child tax credit he because he would not vote for anything that allows women to stay out of the home. And that's a 21st century Neanderthal congressman. So what, how does, you know, I mean, this whole idea that what it's about for those who are against it is keeping women out of the home. How do, I, I know it doesn't make sense, but how is, on what basis does it portend to make sense? And, and I'm not trying to be rhetorical. I'm just trying to understand. Republicans are often critical of the social safety. Like the Republican narrative is that poverty is as much a measure, that poverty is a function of personal behavior and that we all have to pull ourselves by our own bootstraps. Uh, no one can reasonably expect a child to pull himself by his own bootstraps. Note, I never met a child who chose to be poor, who chose to be born into poverty. Poverty is an accident of birth, but it's an accident of birth that could have lifelong consequences. It can change the trajectory of your life. Right? Child poverty leads to lower attendance rates, lower test scores, lower graduation rates, lower employment rates, lower earnings. Uh, and so if we lift children out of poverty, we are changing the trajectory of their lives. We are enabling them to climb the economic and social ladder, which should be the essence of what we call the American dream. Um, why, why should we allow children to be punished by something, by an accident of birth that is beyond their control? And, you know, if you're socially conservative, you should support the child tax credit because it stabilizes families. If you're libertarian, you should support the child tax credit because it's more efficient than creating a whole new government program. You're putting pockets in the money of families who know their needs and know how to spend those dollars. And if you're progressive, you should support the child tax credit because you're providing a social safety net for those in need. So it should be the kind of policy that brings us all together. And if we cannot agree on the well-being of our children, then we're in trouble as a society. Congressman Richie Torres, member of the House of Representatives for New York's 15th Congressional District. More with our guest here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. Here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Congressman Richie Torres, member of the House of Representatives from the Bronx, District 15. With the Bronx as bellwether for the needs of city dwellers nationwide, what are their priorities at this time? Here's the Congressman. Well, as you know, I have a passion for housing. And you know, the National Low Income Housing Coalition came out with a report which found that there is not a single county in America where an essential worker earning minimum wage would afford a two-bedroom apartment. And out of 3,000 counties, there were only seven where such an essential worker could afford a one-bedroom apartment. So our country has become dangerously unaffordable to not only the most vulnerable, but also the most essential members of our society. And one of the criticisms of affordable housing policy is that most of the affordable housing that we create in a city like New York tends to be unaffordable to the lowest-income New Yorkers. When you speak about affordable housing, the question that comes to mind is affordable for whom? And so I'm partnering closely with the Financial Services Chair, Maxine Waters, and the Housing Subcommittee Chair, Emmanuel Cleaver, to introduce a bill known as the Ending the Homelessness Act, which would codify housing vouchers for all. So housing vouchers for all would ensure that every American struggling with housing insecurity or homelessness would have access to a Section 8 voucher, which guarantees a rent of no more than 30% of your gross adjusted income. Housing vouchers for all would bring us as close as we've ever been to ending homelessness and housing insecurity in America. So that's my long-term vision for affordable housing policy at the federal level. And policy number three? Workforce development. You know, we have to rethink the notion that everyone must go to college for four years, learn Shakespeare, and then enter the workforce, right? There are people who prefer apprenticeships, who prefer vocational schooling or career and technical education. And instead of steering everyone in one direction, why not allow people the freedom and flexibility to choose the path that's right for them? 
right? We all should have the ability to bring, to use a Pell Grant either for college education or career education. The decision should be left up to the individual instead of imposing a one-size-fits-all model on everyone. Um, I came across one of the most sobering statistics I've ever read. According to the Department of Education, for every 100 students entering ninth grade, only 16 of them will not only graduate from college, but will end up with a job that requires a college education. Only 16. So the higher education industrial complex, which is robbing millions of students, is failing the vast majority of our society. It's failing 84% of our society. It's squandering the potential and talent of young people in places like the South Bronx. Uh, and so we have to restore respect for vocational schooling, for apprenticeships, for career and technical education. Um, I'm often inspired by a quote from John Gardner, who was the Education and Welfare Secretary, Melinda Johnson. And he once said, a society that denigrates excellence in plumbing, but tolerates shoddiness in philosophy, will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold work. Those words capture the, the, the high premium that we should set on alternatives to traditional education. But I want to ask you about that because, let's face it, you attended college, I did too. We, we were able to maximize our educations. But as you and I both were attending school, we know that we had peers who were maybe just as bright as we were, maybe just, you know, but who were being systemically discouraged from going. So in this, I, I like the idea that you say a Pell Grant can be used to that person's best need, but does that have a danger of being another one of those vouchers that, um, that really were more designed to destabilize Brown v. Board of Ed, to destabilize school desegregation, especially in a state that's still the most segregated school system in the country? Does that kind of egalitarianism for education in a society that is not egalitarian, can it really work? What I do know is that the status quo is failing communities of color misery. Um, and I, I share the view that desegregation should be a stated policy objective of, the, of, of not only the federal government, but government at every level. But when I envision a restructuring of higher education and workforce development, I'm not suggesting that there should be, we should steer the lowest income communities of color toward vocational school. Like, it should be a choice. If you want to go to a four-year college, you should, you should be able to make that choice. If you want to go through a cybersecurity apprenticeship, you should be able to make that choice. Um, the government should not make it for you. You should make it for yourself because you are the best judge of your needs. And what I do know is these institutions of higher learning are preying upon students. The two most inflationary products in the American economy before inflation are healthcare and higher education. And healthcare providers and, and higher education providers are supposed to be not-for-profits. There's something predatory about the state of higher education. Uh, I mean, I, there, there are people who are paying upward of $100,000 a year for a college education. It's unsustainable. But I'll, you know, I'll conclude on, on, on this note. We have nearly $2 trillion in student debt. Higher education is becoming more expensive. It's extracting more and more from our students, but is it producing better results? With that, Congressman Richie Torres, thank you so much for being, for returning to the show and for being on the show today. It's now, always a pleasure to catch up. Thank you. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't think to ask? We had a comprehensive conversation, but um, I would encourage your audience to remain civically and politically engaged. 
uh, because if we do not care enough about our democracy to defend it, no one else will. I think that says it. Before we leave you, here's a look back I thought you'd enjoy from my first interview with then City Councilman Richie Torres. Well, I grew up in a public housing development in the Bronx known as Throgsneck Houses, which incidentally is right across the street from Trump Golf Course. And I often share with people that when the golf course was undergoing construction, it unleashed a skunk infestation. So I... I, I often say that I've been smelling the stench of Donald Trump before he became president. Whoa. But <laughs> when I when I grew up in public housing, you know, I grew up facing many of the same conditions that the tenants are facing today. Leaks and mold and mildew. And I was often hospitalized for asthma at the local public hospital, Jacoby Hospital. I was raised by a single mother who often has to raise three children on a little more than minimum wage. There was a time when the minimum wage was as low as $5 an hour. And, you know, I've had two brothers in prison. I've had a lifelong struggle with depression. I've had struggles with substance abuse. But despite all the challenges that I grew up facing, the one constant that I had in my life, beyond the love of my mother, was a stable, affordable home was public housing. I had the peace of mind that came with living in a home that I could afford. Right? And I came to see in my own upbringing the value of public housing, the value of affordable housing as more than brick and mortar, but as a foundation on which to build a better life for myself. And so I entered public life in the city council on a mission to preserve the very safety net that made it possible for a poor kid from the Bronx to rise. Making that your mission, give us a middle point here. You you mentioned the stability, thank goodness, of your mother's love and, and of having a roof over your head, a stable roof over your head. But what was the turning point when you mentioned that your father was not with your family? May I ask what separated your family? I only spent one full day with my father when I was visiting my two half-brothers in prison. But he had no active role in my life at all, and I, and I, I honestly couldn't tell you why. Mm. So, life. Life. I mean, yeah. Life. He's a stranger to me. I know nothing about him. So, here's an alienated father. And probably life did that to him, too. You talk about growing up with depression as a fact of your life. We can talk about what happens, um, what happens to a dream deferred. You know, we can talk about raisins in the sun. Um, but in your case, can you think of a specific turning point that said, you weren't going to follow the direction of your half-siblings. You weren't going to be alienated like your father. You were going to be you. It might have been an uneventful turning point, but I remember when I was in high school and I joined the law team, I participated in a form of debate known as moot court, which is modeled after appellate argument. You deliver an argument before a panel of judges in the face of rigorous, relentless questioning. And through Moot Court, I came to develop intellectual self-confidence. I came to discover talents I never thought I had. I was one of the best in the city. And so that, that self-confidence, and it was important to me as a person of color because I had, you know, I had been in IGC classes where I was conditioned to think of myself as an intellectual inferior because of the color of my skin. And for the first time, I participated in an activity where I was the most intellectually dominant person in the room, right? And I think that that self-confidence that I forged in my high school years was a factor in my eventual election as a city council member. I'm just amazed at the currents that come together then in this conversation. That amazing image of the skunk infestation unleashed by Trump having turned this 200, or the city having turned this 200-acre lot into a golf course for Donald Trump, his buying the property, but the city doing the work. 
And then his also having at least a five-year tax abatement for the city having done that work for him. And we should bring in the fact that some of this was done under Mayor Rudolph Giuliani at the time, which is another name that then becomes important in all of this. And the issue that people will always say when you talk about public housing, when you talk about education, well, we just don't have the money. Well, I guess I want to I want to start with your observation about the subsidies. My understanding is the Trump golf course received upward of $100 million in subsidy. Right, so more money has been spent on the construction of a Trump golf course that is gated from the community it purports to serve than on the homes of the residents who live in Throgsneck. Right? And so can you imagine the message that sends to the largely families of color who live in Throgsneck housing? Okay, that the quality of their housing, the safety of their housing matters less than subsidies to Donald Trump. On segregation, it's an irony that New York City, which purports to be cosmopolitan, which is one of the most diversities in the world, where 200 languages are spoken, has a deeply segregated school system. In fact, the most segregated in the country, more segregated than the legacy of Jim Crow in the South. But the scandal is not that we're failing to desegregate our schools. The scandal is that we're not even trying For decades, New York City has had no real commitment to integrating classrooms. And that, to me, is as definitive a sign as any, that the conservative movement has won the debate on education so thoroughly that not even self-proclaimed progressives speak about the need to desegregate our schools. The conversation is largely centered around educational funding, fiscal equity. But it never occurs to these people that fiscal inequity is not the problem, it is a symptom of a segregated school system. My thanks to Congressman Richie Torres and to you for joining us here on the Janice Adams Show today. For the podcast and links to our guest, visit my website, JanusAdams.com. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rubio, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.